Hello, 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 and welcome to week 33 of the 52 Week Film Project. This week is a double bill. We have reviewed early a non-spoiler review of If Beale Street Could Talk. It was a screen unseen. Volume 4, I believe, of the screen unseens. And then we've reviewed Alfonso Cron's Roma, uh, which hopefully will stand out to be as good as Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban Part 3. Oh my uh, god, shut well, the fuck up. Jake. Shut up about Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. <laughs> I can't believe, Every episode. I can't believe that all the running gags, that is the one you've decided to go with through episodes. Well, it's <sighs> such a good film oh, mate, how can you differ. say otherwise Beg to differ. it is the one fucking film that doesn't have voldemort in it voldemort is the glue that keeps the series together disagree i think th- i think the departure away from voldemort makes it more rich and interesting mm. did you see that thing um <laughs> that thing that was going around on college humor which is like alternative front covers to harry potter books but if the stories were told by voldemort's perspective no and so they're things like the philosopher's stone the first book is like Voldemort and the time I had to spend a whole semester under some guy's dirty turban only to be beaten by a 12-year-old child. <laughs> <laughs> and then like, the next one goes on and it's like, Voldemort and that time my put the part of my heart that's a diary got stabbed by a fucking 12 year old. It's so funny, man. Go and find them, go and find them. But anyway, as Will said, we're back with a double bill. Uh, if Beale Street Could Talk, which was our fourth screen unseen, it is yet to come out in the cinemas. So Indeed. you'll be listening to this on the 7th of February. I think If Beale Street Could Talk comes out the following Friday, the 14th, 15th. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we've got a while to come, but obviously it's an Oscar nominated film for Best Picture, among other things, as well as Roma, which is also you know, just barnstorming through all of the different award seasons it's it's got something like 10 10 nominations at the oscars and i think it's the most what did i read today the most nominations for a foreign film since 1971 or something ridiculous i'll find the proper quote later when we're reviewing it but anyway it's doing incredible it's on netflix me and will should have watched it a long time ago and we just got <laughs> around to it um but first off it's been a busy week for movie and TV news. Obviously, we had the Super Bowl this weekend. You stayed up and watched it, right? I didn't bother. I did, yes. However, what I didn't do is see the ads. So I saw the ads the next day. I watched on BBC Sport because apparently... Which doesn't show... Oh, it doesn't show the Americans. What did you think of the uh, ridiculous Maroon 5 halftime show? Oh, I was bored, Jake. Mate, I was they... bored through half of it. I did... What was that fucking SpongeBob thing they did? I must have missed the um, memo on that. There was a petition. I heard about this. There was a petition to get the SpongeBob song or SpongeBob characters onto the Super Bowl. Like three million people signed it, and so they did it. Um, what, it's it's, what? They just petitions. played a played a clip of SpongeBob or what? Well, SpongeBob came down through Meteor, and then some rapper started. I don't know. What Travis? Travis bizarre. Scott. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I say some rapper. He is actually quite a big <laughs> some deal. Some rapper. Well, <laughs> in, 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 in slightly strange news to, to open up our news segment, let's talk briefly about the 21 Savage thing. This might be the first time we've talked about anything other than film, TV and game news mm. and maybe comic book news. But let's let's branch off into music news. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say the 21 Savage story? I have absolutely no idea. Please enlighten so, me. So there is a, there's a really famous young rapper from Atlanta georgia called 21 savage he's kind of of the same ilk as migos and a few of those other kind of rappers from that area of the u.s and it came out yesterday that the ice have detained him in america for faking it's like fake like falsifying 
nationality documents or something. So this guy who's built this huge following as a true... Uh, a true red-blooded American rapper is actually from the UK and only moved to the US when he was 12 years old. That's what's right. kind of speculated at the moment. And it's like, it's ridiculous, man. It's so, like... Because he, he's, he's spent so much time talking about, like, oh, when I was younger on the block and there were guys with guns. And, yeah, all right, fine. He never specified that it was in the US, but on the block guys with guns in the uk like not anywhere near as likely he kind of he built that atlanta culture in the last few years as he came up as a rapper and it's if this is true then it's all bollocks it's all a facade mm. um how much but, is, is that in his music is his whole music based on the sort of the streets and the block it, well or kind of atlanta rap is very very uh, dialect specific it's like i mean i could fucking talk about this for ages but it's just yeah, atlanta rappers rap about the experience of atlanta and i know any rapper could say that you could make that case for um you know chance the rapper and kanye west growing up in chicago and you know a lot of what they talk about is chicago life growing up but atlanta is like a, a, a particular hot spot for a certain kind of rap and a certain kind of hip-hop and so to kind of be accused of faking that persona is quite a serious thing. Yeah. Because it, it's kind of so much of what they, they're saying is grounded in their truth. And now it's kind of speculated that a lot of his truth is actually bollocks. Mm. Um, but one of my favourite things was, you know, when people make those like fake Facebook events. So like when all the Brexit stuff was going a bit wonky. No, not last week. A few weeks hey. ago, <laughs> uh, they had that <laughs> Theresa May's leaving drinks event going round. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so they have one at the moment, which is called the Twenty One Savage Welcome Home Party, and someone's photoshopped <laughs> someone's photoshopped a picture of him shaking hands with the Queen in Buckingham Palace. It's so, mate, it's so funny. Um, is there a counter argument that would say that although he ha- he hasn't been in America from birth, twelve years old is also quite young? that he can also experience all of that in his adolescence as still quite a young child. I know yeah. it's just before teens, but it's, all, it's yeah, a true, significant but like, developmental period. Uh, yeah, true, but I can remember back to primary school, like before I was 11 years old, and I still have quite strong memories of it. Like, yeah, it, it, I, I don't think it's a situation where he's tricked himself into thinking he's from America. Mm. Yes. But anyway, anyway, the jury's out. What is your first piece of news for this week, my good friend? Um, so, talking about Super Bowl ads, um, uh, my first bit of news is, I suppose, in terms of this film podcast, one of the most important is, obviously, the Avengers Infinity War TV spot. Uh-uh, now, I believe uh-uh. you're going to talk about... What do you mean? It wasn't an Avengers Infinity War TV spot. Oh, it wasn't an Avengers Infinity War. Do you know what? I wrote that in my notes, and that was just... That was just... I just... That was complete instinct. That is crazy. Anyway, Avengers Endgame TV. Anyway, shows. everyone, thank you for listening in. Uh, <laughs> <sure> to... <laughs> um, yeah, so CV- CBS is charging. This is interesting about the Super Bowl ads. This year, CBS is charging a record five point two five million for thirty for a thirty second spot. Um, that hell. works out roughly to one hundred seventy five grand per second, which is insane. These Super Bowl ads are so well, well sought over. Disney had three. You had Toy Story 4, you had Avengers Endgame, and you had Captain Marvel. 
Um, um, I, I, I'm sure that you'll talk in a bit about the Game of Thrones Bud Light. Oh, mate, um, of course I will. Ad. <laughs> because, dear God. Well, let's, um, hold on. But, so let, let's run through them. Obviously, you mentioned yeah. Avengers Endgame. Did we get anything new from this TV spot that we haven't seen in previous trailers? Because they're very guarded at the moment. You don't yeah. you don't see much. The the most we've seen, ironically, in like the post Infinity War world, is the Spider Man Far From Home trailer. Yes, exactly. But that's even further beyond. So we are led to believe. And it's also quite. It looks quite separate from the lore because it is further on the Endgame, which Captain Marvel isn't. It's not as much attached to that film. Yeah. Um. But there's a couple of things that I picked up on this trailer, and it's a couple of discussion points on line. Um, firstly, is Loki actually alive? In the beginning of the trailer, we see all the Avengers that um, are killed by the snap, but also Gamora, who's killed before the snap of the fingers Do of you? Thanos. Yes, briefly. Ah. It's like 30 seconds, no, less than that, literally a second of just all of the characters go, apart from Loki. So does Loki come back? Personally, I, I think that Loki is one of the only characters that probably will not come back in this film. I'm, I'm pretty sure I remember, I mean, I'm sure it could all be bollocks, but I'm pretty sure I remember reading quite sincere interviews with Tom Hiddleston around Infinity War saying, yes, this is the end of the character. Like, Yeah. Mm. But then, you know, Marvel liked to trick us. Like last time with Infinity War with that trailer that had the Hulk in Wakanda, the Hulk was never in Wakanda. Um, but anyway, but is the question is, Jake, is Thor in Wakanda? The great transition. transition. Uh, there's a brief shot of Thor walking out of a wooden structure, which in terms of aesthetics looks like a cave in Wakanda. So again, the time scale of this film, we don't know it ha- how long after Infinity War this has happened. Could it, it looks by the abandoned New York Stadium that it's like at least a year or maybe two years after it. Um, it kind of has this sort of apocalyptic scape that's although it's not like a, an apocalyptic thing has happened um it it just looks like it just looks a bit smoggy <laughs> that makes sense um and then who or what is arriving in the, to see the avengers midway through the clip we see the remaining avengers outside their whole headquarters looking up and walking towards something so maybe this is captain marvel arriving this could be tony stark and nebula who have teamed up lots of questions but it was so quick, and this is ridiculous analysis of it, that, again, Marvel has kept it quite guarded. All yeah. of these things are sort of fleeting shots of editing and not about the trailer telling a story. For, for me, this was more engaging than... And I clearly didn't pick up on half of it. <laughs> um, but this was more engaging than the longer trailer they released the other month because I think there's only so much reason to bring out that trailer they released back in January. And it's they've got to give the fans something. But per- but personally, it gave me so little that I would rather just not. I'd rather just wait for the film to come out. And I actually, I think we're in quite an interesting position where we're only about just over two months away from this film coming out, and it is very well guarded. And mm. to be honest, I probably will. If there's another trailer that comes out or another couple of trailers that come out before it's released, I might think twice and hold back on watching them. I agree because I just think I might gain more from watch going into this completely completely blank um yeah. or not completely blank obviously i've seen these ones but just with a little bit less to it um marvel yeah. have been quite good generally in not giving their films away the best example of it i think is the star wars force awakens first trailer it tells you nothing about that film while still being a sort of a feature length trailer um so hopefully that avengers will follow suit if they have those trailers coming up um, yeah. But it's exciting. It's exciting. It is um, 
Right, your next piece of news. Well, I mean, it's carrying on the Super Bowl. Following lads, on. I mean, just a quick run-through, really, of the Super yeah, Bowl. Ads. We, we finally got a feature-length trailer for Hobbs and Shaw, the new Fast and Furious spin-off. And you know what? You can slag off the Fast and Furious series all you want, but I see you. I see you there <laughs> with your smartness and your wits and your intellect. You're the same as us. You'll go back home, you'll whack it on on Netflix... You'll cuddle up and you'll have a fucking great time watching it. Because 100%. they are, that is what they are. They're infectious. They are over the top. They're bombastic. They're ridiculous. But they are so much fun. And Hobbs and Shaw, mate, I wasn't majorly fussed. I would rather see another Fast and Furious film, if I'm honest. But seeing this trailer, it is like, it's taken me to DEFCON 5. Like, I cannot wait for this film. It looks so good. It is just everything it should be. It's shit banter between two of the funniest action guys on the main on the big screen. It's got Idris Elba, Idris fucking Elba, playing some <laughs> kind of mechanical superhuman called Brixton, of all things. And I, I mean, fuck. I mean, it's got Princess Margaret. Um, Hang on, it's got Princess Margaret. Yeah, it's whatever her name is from The Crown. She's great. Oh, um, not the actual Princess Margaret. No, right, okay. no, not the real Princess Margaret. Come on, it's not a Johnny English film, Will. <laughs> um, but it just looks brilliant. I mean, there is literally... Have you seen the trailer, mate? No. There is a bit... In, I'll get off my soapbox in a minute, but there's a bit <laughs> where where Idris Elba kidnaps Princess Margaret and jumps out of a, out of a sky, skyscraper and starts running vertically down the side of the skyscraper. So what do Jason Statham and The Rock do? Jason Statham gets in the elevator to go down. The Rock jumps out of the window, flies down. It's a vertical drop, beats up a couple of guys on his way down, grabs the girl, and then swings into Jason Statham in the elevator just to crack his head on it like nut the elevator and go fuck you to Jason Statham from outside the elevator while he is still falling from a skyscraper I, this this film's going to be great man this is the film that skyscraper should have been this is the film that I wanted the Meg to be yeah it's you know what this film is you take skyscraper and the Meg and you mash them together <laughs> and you sprinkle a bit of Luther in there yeah. And that's it. You've got a fucking movie. None of those components, except for Luther, which is incredible, but Skyscraper and the Meg do not stand on their own. Whack them together, look at what you got. You've Correct. got Hobbs and Shaw. <laughs> and they're now what calling a great it, way to end and, that. That was and, wonderful. And they're now You've calling got it, Hobbs and Shaw. They're now calling it Fast and, the Fast and Furious Productions or something like that. And you're thinking, oh, where else are they going to take Fast this franchise? Fast and Furious Production. That's, that's fabulous. I and here that. was me. Here was me when I was a kid watching Fast and Furious 3 Tokyo Drift, which is the worst one in the series, thinking they're gonna, this is going to die now. They're never going to do any more. Yeah. And there are more films than there were at that time. Is how many how many what, do you think that after this they will create loads and loads of Fast and Furious spin-offs? Mate, Fast I, and Furious mate, I mean it is the it is the highest earning it's overtaken Transformers and it's overtaken something else and it's the highest earning franchise in Hollywood. Um wow. and and I think they've done that by building a concept and an ensemble cast of characters that are so engaging that as they're proving with this, you could take any of the relative components and make them into their own thing. 
and 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 it will probably sell tickets. This movie will make a boatload of money. Oh yeah. And and to be fair, I think it deserves to because it completely knows what it is. It it completely. I've never watched a like a trailer for what we all know is going to be a shit action film and felt so com- so confident that they're comfortable in their identity. Mm. Like the Meg was juggling so many different themes. Um, I'm trying to think of other shit. Jur- Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom was like a horror movie and an eco-environmental movie all wrapped into one. And it was a, cl- it was a clusterfuck. This film is playing it simple. It's going big, loud, and it knows exactly what it is. Yes. There is no, there's not going to be any sophistication. There's not going to be any like eco undertones or any kind of message to take away. It's just going to be balls to the wall fun. Well, fingers crossed. If it's not balls to the wall fun, I don't know what your face is going to be like oh. at the end of it. Okay, so if it's not balls to the wall fun, what do I have to do on this podcast? <laughs> and it has to come from you. You have to say Hobbs and Shaw was balls to the wall fun. Yes. So what do I have to do if you can't say that? If if you, if I can't say it was Hobson Shaw was balls to the wall fun. Um ooh. I don't know. Maybe we should do an audience competition. That gets me out of it, I understand. But maybe we should. That's that sounds fun. Call in. I'm not I'm not submitting myself to the <laughs> the, <laughs> the, fans. the dares of the fans. Oh god, yeah, then we do become a bit sort of um Bandersatch. We'll work it out, mate. We'll work it out. But <laughs> suffice to say, I'm not worried in the slightest. It's going to be a brilliant film. But just briefly before we go on, other Super Bowl bits that we could zoom through. Um, we had a Toy Story 4 TV spot. Don't yeah. get, don't gain that much from it. You just get a funny bit of Buzz Lightyear at a carnival uh, interacting with two new characters played by Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele who are great additions. Jordan Peele kind of stole the show at the Super Bowl because he also did this wicked stunt where everyone's TVs around America looked like they were tuning back in after the adverts to the Super Bowl. And in reality, it was fake. It was staged. And it all kind of crackled out. And Jordan Peele came up on the screen. And it it was like a surprise advert for the new Twilight Zone TV series. And it's really austere and creepy and no one really knew what was going on. And even though I clicked on it on YouTube knowing full well what it is, I still felt creeped out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be it's going to be incredible. I mean, it's bringing back such an iconic TV series with the best mind in cerebral horror right now. Did you ever watch The Twilight Zone? Cause I've... Yeah, a little bit. And I, I also watched that Room 101 thing. Did you ever watch that? Um, the panel show? Yes. No, like the strange yeah, yeah. like horror thing. No, no, I've not, I've not watched the strange horror, but I've, yeah, no, I, unfortunately not. And then we um, also go on. No, 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 absolutely fine. Um, do, did you want to mention Game of Thrones? Because we well, have I, to. I was, I was about to mention it. We, go on, mate. We finally had the end of Dilly Dilly. Died. Dilly Dilly is over. Rest in peace, Dilly Dilly. And they did it in the best way possible. This is probably the coolest, like, major TV show, major film teaming up with like a corporate like a commercial company like style ad it was great it was like let's take the weird medieval world that Budweiser have invented in their most recent campaigns and just put the mountain and 
one of Daenerys' dragons and kill off the Budweiser Knight, which is the Bud Knight, which is great. Yeah. It was so fucking funny. It was very, very funny. I thought it was a very clever collaboration between the two of them. But it does just mean now, in my head, although I did love the advertisement, that, that Game of Thrones now comes with a package of Game of Thrones, sponsored by Bud Light. Mm. Um, they did it in the best way possible. I mean, the ad is almost split into two halves. The first part of the ad, which is just dilly dilly, and the second part of the ad, which is just Game of Thrones shockingness and the full soundtrack and the fire and the dragons. I, lo- I loved it, but it is now Game of Thrones sponsored by Bud Light. No, I completely agree. I completely agree. I think it's... um, It kind of reminds me of when Game of Thrones brought Ed Sheeran into the fold for yes! that cameo. It's like, oh, like... Uh, I love you so much as a TV show because you're authentic and real and you don't stoop to certain levels. And, you know, I I think it's a clever move because I really enjoyed it. I really found it funny. And it completely, until this morning, I, like I watched it like a day and a half ago. And then this morning, it was, it was like 24 hours later, I was on the train and I was thinking, wait, they got away with not releasing another actual trailer for the upcoming series by doing that. Mm. And think about it, man. That's so clever of them because it's like to get away with not releasing a new trailer, which probably costs more money and they need to be careful with because it might spoil things. They've paid, what did you say? It was a stupid amount of money to have a Super Bowl. 175000 a second. But they've paid all of that money to get it in front of as many people as possible so that everyone forgets about the fact that they're waiting for another trailer. Yeah, exactly. So clever. Very, very clever Game of Thrones. Very, very clever. Um, does that wrap up the Super Bowl news? Yeah, man. I love that we've not mentioned Captain Marvel because we don't. I, 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 I'm really not fussed, man. I, I actually, <laughs> I, I'm unless people turn around in the previews and say fuck, this film is amazing, which I don't think is going to happen. Um, I don't hold out that much hope, to be honest. Hmm. I think it looks really generic. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw the Super Bowl ad and I learnt nothing new. I, there was just a couple more quips. Mate, I kind of want to watch Aquaman again. <laughs> let's do it let's do it again I just, you know what that that film something it's special. going up in my re- estimations it is something special it's a good film yeah um, I mean no it's not it's utter shit but it's a good film <laughs> um, my second piece of news away from the Super Bowl is um, news this week that Billy Eichner from Billy on the Street um, Reese, he's also in The Lion King he's, yeah. in, he's Timon now um, he is now going to co-write and star in a mainstream LGBT rom-com produced by Judd Apatow. Now they're trying to oh. they're trying to garner um, sort of the Judd Apatow thing behind LGBT sitcom. Um, Billy Eichner, I trust. I like Billy Eichner as a comedian. I think he's got a good sense of, sense of view. Billy on um, the street. Billy on the street is very funny. I find um, it really I think, abrasive. Some of it I find really funny, but some of it he like goes up to people and just fucking gets in their face. And I'm like, dude, you're like a six foot five big man. Like, get out of this old woman's face. What was amazing is I watched, I listened to him on What's the Tea, uh, RuPaul's podcast with myself, Michelle Visage. And <laughs> Name drop. Fantastic podcast. Um, he was completely different. It was like his whole demeanour had changed. It was he was not abrasive at all. He was quiet. Have he was like Simon Amstel, like the film director, and Simon Amstel, the the person on Nevermind the Buzzcocks. Yeah. You get what I mean? Have you um, have you watched the TV show on Netflix, Friends from College? 
No, I haven't. Because he's I, I know he's, the concept. He's in that, and it's about like a, a a group of thirty somethings that all went to uni together, and they're kind of fucked up, intertwined romantic lives. And he is in that, and I feel like he plays it as he acts in in real life. Yeah, um, which is very reserved, quite mute, uh, but incredibly facetious. Mm-hmm. I can I can imagine like good for him. You know what he's doing one of these great bits now, and it, he is so Judd Apatow. Like he's perfect for a Judd Apatow rom com. Um, but I can just imagine him being the biggest bitch if you met him in real life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I get what you mean. I do he's, get what you mean. Oh, I just feel like he. I don't know. He just rubs me up the wrong way. Fair. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure about the direction choice as well. Like, I'm very happy that this LGBT rom com gets mainstream attention because, to be fair, this massive in this massive category. So you know, on Netflix, you have the normal stuff and you have the LGBT category. With the success of Love Simon with and constant success of like dramatic LGBT films coming out recently, like Moonlight getting the Oscar, etc. It seems only right that there should be a big rom-com featuring an lgbt story mm. um that's my thing um but i think that i'm a bit worried about the director who's nick stoller who wrote forgetting sarah marshall which i like get him to the greek which i'm indifferent about and both the bad neighbors films which i don't like I think, so i think a lot of people are indifferent to get into the greek <laughs> yeah a lot of people are <laughs> exactly i always get um get into the greek mixed up with um um, what's the Greek film? Um, the other Greek film. Um, oh, mate, I don't know. No, sorry, it's not even a Greek film. It's uh, two weddings and a funeral, or four weddings and a funeral. Yeah, I always get them mixed that's up. That's got and I nothing to do with the Greek. I know. It's just in my head. Those two <laughs> films are the same. Is Russell Brand in both of them? I don't even know. I don't think Russell Brand's in four, four weddings and a funeral. I, I don't know. Get into the oh, Greek, I remember. Russell. Anyway. Anyway. Um, exciting news. They could ruin it. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Um, my final bit of news is uh, Russell Brand in four weddings and a few. Sorry, I can't get over that. No, absolutely um, fine. My, my final bit of news is a really awesome bit of surprise news, actually. Um, have you watched the early 2000s film Shaft? With Samuel L. Jackson playing a, a a tough and badass black cop in a heroin-infested city. Uh, no. Right. Okay. So you should watch it. It's completely <laughs> over the top, but it's great. Um, but Shaft is now making a comeback. Um, it's a reboot, which is going to have Samuel L. Jackson returning to the role, but it's also going to have Jesse T. Usher playing his son. And the story essentially revolves around his son coming up and being a cop and having this case he can't crack. So he goes to his like tough nut, crooked cop dad to kind of show him the ways of the world. Um, and these these films are known, like Shaft was known for being particularly badass. It's quite a kind of career formative role for Samuel L. Jackson. It's where he got his like motherfucker and all that shit from. Um, the poster is amazing. Um, they, you've got all of this, all of the kind of main characters lined up, and it says Shaft, and then at the top of the poster it says more Shaft than you can handle. So, <laughs> like this is this is the opening of their marketing campaign. It's just dick jokes on like tube station walls and just everywhere, and it's fucking great. I think it comes out in June. I think it's going to be really funny. Um, I look forward to rewatching the original Shaft. 
because it is, is it's like... so it's so over the top, man. Like I remember Donald Glover back when he did stand up, Childish Gambino. He did this um, he did this sketch where he was joking about like who should play Shaft in the Shaft, the eventual Shaft remake that they do. And he he made he was this gag about how he should, he suggested that Michael Sarah should play Shaft as like a on the other end of the spectrum joke to kind of explain how nuts Samuel L. Jackson is in the role. And he right. was sort of like he did he did this joke where it was like you know Samuel L. Jackson would go and like beat women etc etc. Michael Sarah would like be there with his ice cream like tripping over his shoelaces like it, it's a really funny sketch. But anyway, Michael Sarah is confirmed to not be not play shoved. Good. Good. I think that would be disastrous. Um okay, so my third and fourth piece of news. I have I I this week oh, I've branched out. Third and fourth, you snuck that in there. I know. I have a fourth piece of news this week, everyone. I always have, only have three. Um and this week I'm diversifying. It's great. Yeah, you're um, you're, you're nice and disciplined while I'm a bit all over the place. <laughs> I'm like a, I'm um, like a golden retriever when it comes to the weekly news segment. <laughs> so much energy love it um so third piece of news harry lloyd is going to be starring as the new professor x in legion so legion is an fx show that's about um a sort of tripped out x-men drama series have you watched any episodes of legion no i've never seen legion i've been told it's quite good though yeah i think it's because it's on this sounds really weird but it's because it's on fx and fx stuff hasn't really translated into my mainstream if that makes sense i don't like, think i've ever been given the opportunity to watch legion exactly um but apparently it's it's a critical and commercial success um in the in the states and it stars dan stevens as david heller um one of the mutants and this third season's <coughs> coming up and they have cast harry lloyd as <coughs> professor x now harry lloyd me. is is <laughs> very nice um harry lloyd is the person who played um, brother of mine in Family of Blood, the Doctor Who episode. He also plays Viserys Targaryen in um, oh, Game yeah, of Thrones. Oh yeah, 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 I know. And I think he plays young um, Ma- Margaret Thatcher's husband, whoever that person was. Um, I can't remember his first name. Anyway, um, so he's he's done a couple of stuff. He's been th- he's been acting, but in these sort of bit roles for years and years and years. I've always thought he's a fantastic actor. He's, he's got this very scary stare that is beautiful in family blood but also quite piercing in other films that he does and tv shows that he does um so i'm very excited about that and my final piece of news and this is a big one this is a big thing for me go on mate go um, on hit me with it there is a new trailer for a film that i did not know existed until um today called, um, a new trailer for benjamin benjamin is the new um well not even new the first feature-length film debut for simon amstel as a director released mm. in cinemas and now it the, was what's it going to be about um benjamin is about um a, a the film benjamin has a film benjamin in it it's about a writer who um writes a story about loneliness and fear and rejection right and it premieres the bfi film festival which this film instantly did as well um and then gets slated because it's empty and hollow and then in the in the sort of pain of all of this um critical failure he actually falls in love with someone um it's another lgbt narrative simon apps was very good at writing those um i have yet i don't know if you've ever seen grandma's house but simon apps writing in that is stunning absolutely stunning um it's starring the person who plays merlin which is great do you remember merlin 
Yeah, I do actually. Yeah. Merlin was great. Colin yeah. Morgan, and he's doing an Irish accent, which he never did at the time. He looks um, a bit like a pixie. Yes, he does look like a pixie. Not that um, I, not that I've ever seen a pixie. <laughs> no, but if you saw a pixie, that's what you'd imagine them to look like. Um, and it's, it's, this trailer is very funny. There's a couple of there was a couple of great lines um, about. I mean, he, he, the guy who he falls in love with is French, and he says, um, "Oh, it's cool that you're French. I like Les Mis." Like shouting after him, and it's just—it's <laughs> all very, very silly. Um, so I'm very excited. Um, Simon Amstel from Nevermind the Buzzcocks days was probably one of my favourite comedians, just because he was so out there. And then recently, he's just turned into a fantastic writer and director. And we both watch Carnage, which I think is a fantastic um, mockumentary. Um, an so... excellent, an excellent mockumentary. What, what's creepy about Carnage is it kind of imagines a world where people just don't eat meat. It's a massive taboo. It's a thing that no one does anymore. But it only in the documentary it only pushes the like the timeline forward to like twenty thirty or something like that. Mm. And to be honest, with the rate that veganism is picking up in this in in the Western Hemisphere, um, we're not far off it. No, not at all. So we're kind of, it's kind of weird. It's like, is this eventually going to turn from a mockumentary into a Dispatches episode? <laughs> um, apparently he said in this film that um, all the good guys are vegans. Um, so he is really pushing that point strong. Uh, my favourite thing about this film, though, is that um, it stars, as themselves, Mark Commode and Simon Mayo doing their Radio 5 talk show because they are film critics who review at the BFI and slate this film apart. And apparently it's in, like, the entourage levels of Mark Commode hate. Like, he's performing him doing that Mark Commode bad review character. Right. Which is... I, I love. I love More Mark Commode. And Mark Commode being meta, it's everything I need. Um, so, yeah. You do this film a is better film for me. <laughs> Okay, great. Well, I mean, I was a bit wonderstruck there by your uh, your love for Mark Camo once again, but uh, you know, I shouldn't be shocked anymore. You really shouldn't be shocked. I love him <laughs> actively and avidly. I love him. All <laughs> oh, right, let's roll on with the reviews. So, well, dealer's choice, mate. What do you want to review first? If Beale Street could talk or Roma? It's a very good question. I think we should review them in order. Of what, how we watch them. Okay, fair play. Does that make sense? So Absolutely. our m- minds are logical. Well, let's talk about if Bill Street could talk first. So this is the sophomore effort of uh, Barry Jenkins, who won the Oscar two years ago now for Moonlight. Now, me and Will can both agree. For Will, it's um, ta- Moonlight tackles a topic that you know is, is very, very important to him and, and to me as well. Mm. And it's one of the most impressive films of the last decade. It's um, stunning. It, it really is one of the probably one of the best films ever made. Um, the way that it deals with race and the way that it deals with sexuality, issues, and then the combination of the two. It's stunning. The things that are portrayed in that film is just stunning. It's it's insane. It's insane. Um, and obviously, we're big fans of. Uh, oh, fuck, you can't say you're a big fan of someone whose name you forget, Jake. Um, <laughs> who's the Who's the guy who's in Bird Box? Who is the the adult character in Moonlight? Um, he oh is the one who is. It's called, uh, not Terence, Trevante Rhodes. Trevante Rhodes. Trevante Rhodes. Rhodes. Um, the best part of um, 
the Predator. The Predator film, yeah. And 100%. the best part of Bird Box as well. Um, but, you know, so Barry Jenkins, he, he brought together this incredible cast led by Trevante Rhodes, and he created kind of cinematic magic. Now, if Beale Street Could Talk is not... Um, I, well, I don't know if Moonlight's an adapted screenplay or if it's an original script... Um, but if Beale Street Could Talk is a very famous American novel by an author called James Baldwin um, that tackles um, racial indifference and strife in um, in Harlem, in inner city Harlem. Are you, what, what year is this, Will? Is it the 60s or the 70s? I think it's the 70s, but I'm looking it up as we speak. But anyway, so it, it follows the it follows the relationship. As we said, we'll keep this spoiler free. Yes. Um, but it, it it follows the the love between two main characters, two young adults called Tish and Fonny, um, as they kind of make their way into adulthood, out of their families' lives, and deal with the everyday indifference and difficulty that they face in inner city Harlem, being two young black people. Um, on paper. Well, I mean, it's a classic novel, but on paper, this should <laughs> uh, on paper with Barry Jenkins directing and writing the adaptation, etc. This this should have been one of the best. Again, like Moonlight, it should have recreated that magic. It should have been one of the best films, um, at least of this year. And it's certainly getting that look in from critics. You know, every you know, it's getting a lot of good praise. It's getting a lot of reception. And it's got a lot of nominations in awards season. It's obviously it's one of the contenders for best picture in the Oscars. But I mean, me and you went to see it together, and we saw it a week ago now, and we went to see it as a screen unseen. So it was a really pleasant surprise to find that we were watching this movie ahead of it coming out, and we were both really buzzed. So and excited. We, and we we both came out of it not really knowing what to think, didn't we? Yeah, and we've had a bit of time now to reflect. And I think that my main thing about it is that it's it what it's a, should be an emotional roller coaster. And um I've got a couple of quotes which was um which were reviews of the book. And I think this when I read this, I think I now understand what my views about the film is. Um the, James Baldwin described, described his book as this, every poet is an optimist, but on the way to that optimism you have to reach a certain level of despair to deal with your life at all um, and then another review says a quite moving and traditional celebration of love it affirms not only love between a man and a woman but love of a type that is dealt with only rarely in contemporary fiction, that between members of a family which may involve extremes of sacrifice in those reviews and in James Baldwin talking about it, it's all about hope and this film, for me, is it starts with some beautiful sequences and some real emotional, lovely things. But towards the end of it, you lose the hope through a mixture of sort of mixture of bad time lapses. You you miss stuff. You miss the fact that it's not an eight-hour story of yeah. these nuances, like piece by piece. You just miss whole storylines. And the end of it, just feel, you feel a bit like empty. And the ending itself, I'm not going to spoil the film, but the ending, it really, really leaves you feeling a bit, a bit like you were wanting some kind of emotional resolution. 
whereas it's just kind of left on a stalemate. Yeah, and, and also it, it wasn't very clear when it there, was, there wasn't much of a definitive end point. It kind of just ended, um, very much like we the last the last screen and scene we did was the old man and the gun and remember me and you both watched it and think that there's a good half an hour of that film at the end where it could have just ended and oh yeah we- weirdly kept going on and we were sort of sitting there thinking this film's lovely and all it's very quaint but like you know i've got places to be like <laughs> this could have there was about up by six that. endings to the old man um it was really it just kept going on didn't it mm. um this film was not quite as drawn out it, it was a bit too long for me if i'm honest i did get a bit bored um but it just kind of petered out like nothing really it didn't come to any kind of massive conclusion or massive turning point in the plot um and i know to a degree it's kind of this can only be held so much as a film you know if, if it's true to the book then it's kind of the book's fault but i just think that Books have this kind of... (laughs) God, I can't believe I went to university and I just said that. Um, (laughs) Books have so much more time to convince you of characters and to engross you in a story. And I think that was what was lost here is there's a reason this is a classic story, a classic American novel, is because it features an incredible setting with a dynamic range of characters and a a lot of trauma um, and a lot of love. But, and it's very, very real. But it, I, I think that was lost in the film. I, I, I felt like there was a sheen the whole way through of nothing of any real seriousness came to a head at any point, even in the bits in the film that you would argue were kind of the dangerous moments or the shocking moments. They just weren't that shocking. Um, and I think that made me struggle... I think that was the reason I struggled because I kind of felt like I wasn't truly experiencing or fully grasping what the couple was going through. But then also, I, I think that the, the there are a lot of good actors and actresses in this. Regina King does a great job. I, I don't think she deserved the Golden Globe um, compared to some of the other nominees after watching this. I think she does a, she does a good job, but it's nothing mind-blowing. I think she she's nuanced, but I don't think she's got the range of emotion. Yeah. But there's there's one moment where she breaks down in the film where it's quite upsetting, quite emotional. Um, but apart from that, she kind of keeps an even keel. She's sort of the stability. Yeah. And those stability roles, I don't, in a, in a piece of cinema, I'm not really that interested in. Yeah, completely. Um, and, I mean, Brian Tyree Henry does a great job. Obviously, he's he's an actor off Atlanta. He was in Widows, which we famously 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 slagged <laughs> off. Um, Famous to us. And he was he was he was pretty terrible in that. But he was just, in my opinion, in the wrong role. In this, he plays a like a an old friend of Farney's who's come out of prison. And there's a probably my probably my favourite moment in the film. I know we haven't got to that yet. But Spoilers. My, my my best moment in the film is a conversation between the two of them. Um, which is a very real, very serious, all cards on the table emotionally look at how these young black men internalised the injustice that was going on around them and to them. It's um, it, it's really impressive. It, it's probably my favourite scene in the film is when they, the two characters sit down and have a beer and genuinely talk. Um, I just felt a lot of the rest of it was quite detached um, I found it quite hard to get engaged with the characters because they were all so muted. 
Um, I know that yeah. was kind of it felt like a stylistic choice that they were all quite quiet. And this is this is really one of those like read the messages through the eyes and the face, the, like the close ups of the faces and stuff like that kind of film. And you know, there is merit to that to a degree. But I think when there's so little being said between characters and you're expected to grasp so much emotion, it does get quite difficult. Um, yeah, I would agree. Um, it's di- it, This film is difficult because so much of it is in its nuance and that's what's been said about it like critics rave about this film because it's in the small conversations it's the sort of small small chat in this in the in the rooms and in the places it's kind of like a play it's sort of there's it has these cinematic moments and it goes from scene to scene to scene to scene but what it does is that it's quite it's also a if you if you, this is not much of a spoiler because it's in the book um but also it's it's the whole point of the f- film is that it's it's a non-linear narrative and what that means is that whilst the film is beautifully constructed and it's cleverly constructed it just does feel a bit detached you're not fully going with the story and i know linear non-linear narratives that you you go with the story anyway because you're so invested in what's happening in the screens but the non-linear nature of it plus the fact that it was all very small and nuanced, kind of made me feel like it was a kind of a, a play you're watching at the National Theatre and not a, a, a cinema film. Yeah. Um, it felt very exposition heavy a lot of it, a lot of the time. Um, not in terms of plots, but in terms of emotions. Like, we are going to say that we are feeling sad and we are going to say all of this kind of stuff. And they have really nuanced bits of this film. There's so many amazing scenes. But they don't really come together. If that yeah. makes sense, yeah, yeah. no, I, I agree. I agree. I think it it is an interesting. It's interesting the way it's done. It darts around a lot in their lives. Um, there's a really strange scene where um, Dave Franco is in the film um, for seemingly no apparent reason. Um, we could not believe it. We were shocked. I think I cinema. think you let out a squeal in the cinema. <laughs> there was an old woman that was like, "Oh God." Yeah, I know. I was so surprised to see him in this because this is not J- Dave Franco's film. This is not Dave Franco's realm at all, and I don't think he was in any of the PR for it. So it was just like it was so strange. It's like what the fuck? Why couldn't they just get any? Like why did they pick him for this one really insignificant role? Like all right, this isn't even spoiling the film. The scene involving Dave Franco is him showing someone round a place to possibly purchase as a home in inner city Harlem. And it, it, there is nothing really, apart from him saying something quite sweet, there is nothing to that character at all. No significance. I just don't understand why he got the role. Like, is he struggling? Like, is is the work not there for him anymore? Like, what's going on? Oh, I disagree. I, th- I think it's like in Matt Damon being in Interstellar. Like it's a it's a shock big casting because if you think about the leads of this film, is that they're predominantly quite unknown act- actors and actresses. Even Regina King, Regina King has done a lot of movies and has got critical acclaim. But I was looking through our IMDb and I was thinking, where have I seen Regina King before? I've seen her somewhere. I've seen her in two things: an episode where she was herself on RuPaul's Drag Race, and Legally Blonde Two. That's the only two films that I've seen Regina King in. I don't know about you, but are, are you the same? Like, have you seen Regina King in more? Um, I, I there is something I remember her from. I can't remember what it was though. She um, 
She was in something really, really. Oh, we had this conversation. She she was in the Boondocks TV show. Oh yes, yes, um, yes. Where the... she voices the two young boys, um, and it's I, I found that so impressive. I couldn't believe that when I found out she's mm. in the Leftovers as well. That's a pretty good show. But no, I haven't seen her in a lot, and I no. wasn't, you know, but I wasn't but massively I think Dave, impressed. Dave Franco turning up, and in my mind, even though the film is in the scene is insignificant. Maybe because it's the fact that Dave Frank Dave Franco's in it, but also the fact that it's quite well written. It's quite quite a nice air about it. What they're actually doing on screen, it's quite joyous, and the end of it takes you by surprise. About Dave Dave Franco is a really good character, and you learn that very quickly. I thought it was fantastic. I love that Dave Franco scene. Yeah. It is pointless and shouldn't be in this narrative. Like it 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 shouldn't be in this film. But also, it, I think it's, it, it's, it's wonderful. It's not that I've got anything against Dave Franco. It's just a bit like you it's see odd. it happen and you're like, what? Why? Um, have you got anything else to say? Or should we go on to Critic Quote Awards? Because I, I think I'm pretty much done with my thoughts on Beale Street Could Talk. I think this is the thing about the film is that we did not find it as remarkable as we assumed it was going to be. And because of that, I haven't really thought much about it. Mm. Um, and, and I've prepared th- podcast notes. I've thought about like all the different things things with it. But in terms of it sticking in my brain, it's just not there. I'm interested. I'm interested to know if if if, if any people listening into this do go and watch it when it comes out next week. Do um, like drop us a drop us a message on Instagram or drop us like a direct. You can send us a direct voice message on Anchor. Um, on the app where we share the podcast, um, let us know your let us know your thoughts because I think that this is an incredibly subjective film. Uh, I think that me and you probably influenced each other in our because we went to see it together. We influenced each other in kind of our opinions of it coming out. But I do also think that we have built quite solid minds for understanding what makes an audience tick. And I just don't think that when this gets to general release, it's going to be as popular as the critics think it will be. No, I, I think mean, if, if you, I think I think if you I think if you surveyed people that came out of Odeon's across the UK on opening night of this film, I think that you'd find a large proportion that were a bit disappointed by it. I mean, I looked on Rotten Tomatoes before, and it's had it's had a US it's had its US release, hasn't it? Yes. At this point, it's I think has in just November. UK. Um, it's sixty-seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes compared to ninety-five percent critical. Mm. There is a big disparity of uh, people just finding this film as an audience a bit middle of the road. Um, sixty-seven is not bad on Rotten Tomatoes, but it's still not up there. Whereas ninety-five percent as a critic score suggests that this is this is. I think this is a more nuanced critic film. They can talk about the beautiful the beautiful changes in time and they can talk about the small scene narrative and they can talk about how, how it could relate to this film director and i feel like as critics we're more of the people's voice <laughs> if i could yeah, say that no no we completely are there's nothing there's nothing snooty about the 52-week film project um my best description is by mike lasselle from the san francisco chronicle um oh, i love the san franny chronicle big up always do the san francisco chronicle i love it um, he says, although the film is beautifully shot and filled with great performances, ultimately, if Beale Street could talk, lacks the deep gut punch that makes a movie stick. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. Mine is of a similar ilk. It's from Anthony Lane of The New Yorker. And he said, the planets of the plot, as it were, are more exciting than the sun around which they revolve. 
love it. That's fun. And I do, I do agree. I think there's some really interesting characters in here. I just think they're massively underutilized. Yeah. For the sake, for the sake of quite a boring plot that doesn't really come to any form of resolution. Mm. I think this, yeah, it's it's difficult because it's it's. I feel for me this film is so middle of the road that it's just a bit un- unremarkable. Um, there are beautiful bits in it, but it just doesn't. It comes together to be a bit empty. Um, mm. But anyway, my most savage um, is this. Um, oh, I've lost it. No. <laughs> I've, I, what I've done is actually, well you're just being you're just being so nice this I'm week being so nice you know what I'm going to be nice and not do a most savage flip okay. the scripts alright well <laughs> just just leave it to me leave it to me my most savage is from Rachel Wagner of 54disneyland.com I massively distrust the legitimacy of this review now she said while I acknowledge there is craft to be found in this film I really was irritated while watching it. Nobody talked like a human being. It all felt like a bad off, like a bad off Broadway play where the talent is way better than the script. Yeah, and I think that's more or less what I was saying with my best description as well. I just think that there's so much ability and capability in this team, in the writing team, in the directing, in the cinematography, in the, um. In the in the musical artistic creation and in the in the actors and actresses themselves, and I just think that nothing really melded together in the way it should have done. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, so moving on to best moment, my best moment was definitely the bit with Dave Franco. Oh. I love it. Okay, I love it. All right, fine. I can't stop. Fine. It's so heartwarming. And what do you give this? What do you give this out of ten? Uh, I give it a six point five. Yeah, same here. Yeah, it's, it's it, it just it it's not a bad film. It just doesn't do anything remarkable, and I expected a lot more from it. Yeah, I agree. For all the hype it's getting as well, we talk about this a lot on on the podcast. Is that films that get critical hype, and then you watch them, and you're like, is this film getting critical hype because? Moonlight was good, or is it getting critical hype because it's a good film? Yeah, true. But an interesting point to point out is Barry Jenkins wrote this alongside writing Moonlight back in 2013. So it's very possible that one was so good at the other's uh, detriment. It, it, yeah, could, it could be that Moonlight was so fantastic, and if Beale Street could talk, is just not quite as good because he committed more of his emotion and time to Moonlight. But, you know, we'll never know. We'll never know. We'll never know. Um, On to the second review of the episode. We are now going to talk about another Oscar Best Picture nominee, which is Roma. I think we're more or less there in terms of our Oscar Best Picture nominees. Are there any that we haven't seen? We haven't seen Green Green Book. Book, Yeah. And we haven't seen Vice, have we? We have not seen Vice, no. Um... Is the film with um, Melissa McCarthy Oscar Can You Ever Forgive Me? Yes. No, not Can You Ever Forgive Me. Yeah. Is it Can You Ever Forgive Me? Yeah, it's Can You Ever Forgive Me. It has the same intonation Um, as you were never really here. (laughs) No, but I I think that, yeah, I mean, it is. It's the only ones we haven't seen on the list now are Vice and Green Book. Can You you Ever Forgive Me is not on there, but we've seen... We've seen Black Panther, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favourite, and A Star Is Born. 
Obviously, out of all those films, we've reviewed three of them. Black Panther came out before we started the podcast. And I think A Star is Born is still our highest rated. I think I can't remember. Did we give it a nine each? I think I gave it a 9.5. Okay. I'm pretty sure I gave it a 9.5. But, but, but rest assured, um, that you know, that's one of the best films we've seen since doing this, starting this project. Yes. Um, Enter Roma, which uh, has has been out for about a month now. It's a straight-to-Netflix release, but limited theatrical release in some parts of the UK and the US. Um, I'm, I'm very much disappointed that I haven't had the chance to see this on a big screen, because it really, it really, really should be witnessed on the biggest screen possible to fully take it all in. I'm hoping that if it does well in this awards season, it will get a re-release in UK cinemas. Um, but this is well. How much do you know about the background of this film? Um, I don't know how it was produced and created. What I do know about it is that it's kind of based on Alfonso Cuarón's childhood. He's tried. He's it's set in colonial Roma um, in Mexico City, and it's and Alfonso Cuarón um, tries to sort of make it. He some people call it a documentary. It's not a documentary. It's a, but it's, it's, a dra- it's, it's a dramatized documentary. Yes, exactly. Um, about um, the colonial Roma in the time of Mexico City, at the same time as um, what was what was the name of the um, the parliamentary groups? The, the Los Halcones, the Hawks, um, Los who Halcones, were yes, yes, who were the political movement at the time. It's a it's an it's a film where I am embarrassed to know not a lot about the history beforehand. Um, it it felt so rich watching it because I was like, where is this? I don't understand. Is this? I didn't really understand until I until I watched it and then looked it up afterwards where it was set. It just it I and it was something that was so unfamiliar to me. So it'll be really interesting that in the weeks after um, I've watched this film to understand and look up and research the history behind this because this film has really made me want to look at that yeah no completely i mean it is it is fascinating i mean he alfonso cuaron's done a, a lot of big films i mean he's he like he like we mentioned earlier he did harry potter and the prisoner of azkaban big film um, but he was he also did gravity a few years ago which was a which terrific film for. yeah very true um he, he also did children of men way way back which is still a, a very very um nowadays it's a very underrated film i think it's a classic personally um but he's kind of he's built this incredible repertoire of of film capability and he's 57 now so he's been going for a while but he's taken the time to step back literally go back to roma which is where he was born and raised um quite literally to the house opposite his childhood home to produce, shoot, and co-edit this kind of two-and-a-half-hour epic movie loosely documenting his formative years or kind of about a year of his childhood in a large family with three other siblings and a, a set of parents whose marriage is falling apart in front of the kids. And... He frames the whole thing through kind of long one-take scenes. It's all black and white. Um, and he utilises the kind of the, the family, the, the main family housekeeper as kind of the underlying plot device for the whole film. 
Um, he frames the whole thing through the experiences of Cleo, who Cleo Gutierrez is the living maid in their kind of quite affluent white family home. Um, and it kind of it opens up with her doing the daily chores and then getting the kids ready for school and taking them to school and everything. And it, it, it definitely doesn't chop anything up. You, there are, there are scenes in this film where you'll be watching it and you'll be thinking, cool, like they really are going to show me her sweeping all of the water away from this hallway, aren't they? Mm. Um, and it's definitely a film you have to be in a patient mood to watch, but if you give it that patience, you are going to be absolutely mesmerized by the truth of this film and how raw and organic it feels. It's insane. Um, it is unbelievable. It, it, you're right. It does take. It takes you a while to get into this film. I found myself my attention waning a bit in the first half an hour of the film. You have to get um, used to it. Absolutely, you have to get even, used to it. You have to get used to the style. Even if you're like the ponziest film viewer, like you're still going to sit there and think, "God, like I really have to." submit to this film and it's kind of long drawn out scenes like you you really have to give it time and that's because of the work that's done on the camera is that you have these 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 this use of um cinematography where you have um a, a tracking shot that is directly parallel so you're sort of it's it's what went wes anderson does with his films um the grand budapest hotel where you have a a completely flat screen you have it 2d um and you but alfonso Cuaron out wes anderson's wes anderson in this film like the way that he chooses these shots is not for show or for critique it's to show more of the screen it's this huge wide screen and the, the it's black and white the the actual the, the actual color palette of the screen and but it's black and white and not that sort of artist way of black and white it's black and white where it's obviously filmed in colour and you sort of sometimes see the colour behind it, even though it's black and white. Mm. Um, it, there's a richness to the picture. Um, but what's most impressive about this film, I suppose I've just talked about the technical aspects of it, is that it's a really heartfelt story where it's, yes, it's shot in a beautiful way that can make some film geeks go go very very excited but it's also got such a heart that it draws you to it there are scenes in it that are genuinely shocking um i mean i i'm gonna i'm gonna bring it up the scene where um i mean i'm I'm non-spoiler review for um if bean street could talk spoiler review for roma um there is a scene where the main character cleo is having a baby and it is and it's you see it being born and it's a stillbirth and it is one of the most horrific things I will ever watch. And it's all done with these long pauses and the sort of mechanical nature of being, doing, of doing the operation as opposed to her pain and her tears. And it's awful. And it's all filmed in this sort of long tracking shot with normality going on around it and this horrifically deadpan performance of it. Yeah. And it's, it's shocking. It's truly shocking. I, I, I found myself in tears quite a lot of a lot of the film and that's something for a film that is also an art piece yeah no no no, no completely it's um the, the funny thing about this film is in many ways it's incredibly mundane and it just shows 
real life happening and people existing and the kind of the sad truth of life is that people go through a lot of hardship in their adult life and and this film captures that it captures the joys of um raising a family and having children and even the joys of just um from cleo's perspective being like she's she's a character who's very understanding and very accepting of her her place in society she doesn't complain you don't see her whine she just kind of moves along and she 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 works and she has her friends and she takes everything in her stride and i think there's a lot that we could learn from that um i think alfonso cuaron's very much trying to show that kind of undertone of there's a lot of people out there that have a lot of graft in their lives and things haven't really gone the way they would dream they 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 would do but you know they're not they're not complaining half as much as people that have great lives and wish their lives were even better correct um and it's very interesting because you watch cleo in this film go through some some pretty horrible stuff and kind of just get on with it and still support a whole family while you watch the i think the point that's trying to be made in this film is that um this 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 affluent white family they have a seemingly perfect life and the only thing that really damages that is the parents marriage breaking and 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 them separating mm. um but in in that governs the family and the mother and the father and all of the family's experience for more or less the whole film and it's only one thing whereas cleo goes through so much grief in this film and also is subjected to the grief of the family and doesn't crack under the pressure. And so there's definitely a, a, a message being conveyed in this film that, you know, there are some people in life that need to strengthen their resolve um, and look around at what other people have got. 100%. In comparison to them, it's I mean it, it's just impressive. But then, kind of, you we could go on for ages about the cinematography and how stunning these shots are, and there are just there are just some beautiful scenes. Like there's a scene where the family and Cleo all go to like um, a hacienda, it's called, uh, where they go and spend like a holiday celebration with like friends and family in like a a, a lovely kind of uh, beautiful wooden shack in the woods and they, that's, <laughs> sorry a beautiful wooden shack in the woods well that's, that's a terrible <laughs> really way, sold it terrible way of describing it i don't know what you call it a massive log cabin it's, yes it's rich it's, it's it's a fucking expensive property all right we couldn't afford it will no, no <laughs> but, afford it. um they had they're like they're drinking they're smoking they're dancing etc and then there's like a fire in the woods and everyone drops everything and they go and like get buckets and try and put the fire out as a kind of a group of like 30 40 people and this this guy kind of comes into the shot this norwegian guy and sings this tune it's like um it's like he counts down the seconds to the new year and then sings like a lullaby and it's just fascinating there's no context to why he's there or what he's doing um but you just watch it and you're mesmerized and there's all of these like little pockets, like these little moments in this film that are so stunningly beautiful, but don't really do anything particularly out of the ordinary. Um, I, yeah, it's great. My, I, I also found it to be a film that had a bit of humour behind it. I mean, I think one of the funniest, funniest, but also kind of like 
satirical things is when that you visit you visit later on um, the army camp or the the head co- the um, training base of the Hawks, mm-hmm. and um, there is a scene with all of these very very serious looking. Um, we are going to fight for a cause. We're going to we we're going to cause chaos. Um, pe- um, a group of about 100 150 people all topless like doing their karate and then this guy comes in as like the grand meister my master <laughs> he and looks like and start... and he, he looks like something from the wwe <laughs> yeah he's like proper like mexican wrestler um ray mysterio has nothing on him <laughs> um but and he's then just starts teaching them yoga and none of them can, them can do it and then afterwards they're like oh look at the look at this guy and it's just moments like that juxtaposed with moments of extreme horror, and I suppose it's, I suppose it's so extreme because it's deadpan, and it's so, and maybe that's because it's real. Do you, do you get what I mean? Yeah, no, completely. It's, it's, it's just so so played for. This is actually what's happening. That's why it's kind of this dramatized documentary. There's no pomp and circumstance about it. There's no. Um, there's no crazy swooning score behind it. M- mostly, the film has got an incredible soundscape of they've got such good good sound because they they're picking up conversations from down the lot in the one scene where p- characters are talking to each other, and that's what's nice about this film. You feel like you're literally watching these characters on the street, um, and therefore it becomes much more heart hitting when terrible things happen to them, but also much more positive when really nice things happen to them and you have really nice moments. Um, I thought think the four kids in it are great. They have, make a really good combination. Yeah. Um, I think the per- the act- actress who plays Cleo, um, her name is because I want to mention her. Um, Yalitza Aparicio. Apri- oh, I can never get it right. Aparicio. Um, she's amazing. She's she's so good because it's most of it is just deadpan. Her face is just sort of being weathered by all these all this stuff that's, that's happened to her. But she's just sort of dealing with it. She's going fine. Yeah. But of course that was going to happen because that's life, and it's really powerful. Um, I, I can. Whereas if Beale Street could talk, I don't really understand why it's been nominated for an Oscar. This I think is an absolute masterpiece, and is kind of for me it's more than the award ceremony of the Oscars, if that makes sense. Like this is a film that will outlast the Oscars and will outlast the season of the Oscars. It's a true masterpiece. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, would you? What do we have more to say about it? Do you want to go through some more moments? Do you want to go critics' choice? What more? I, I don't know if I have anything else to say. You know, I just think it's a, it's a really magical film. It's not going to be for everyone, and that's the thing. Is I, I know that there are there are a lot of a lot of people I could that come to mind for me who I could recommend this to, and probably wouldn't be in the right frame of mind at the time of watching to truly grasp it's you really have to concentrate yeah it's it's hard work and i I think i was lucky to catch it in a time when i was in the right mood um because i think i could have very easily watched this film in a quite an impatient way and not gained as have gained as much from it as i have done yeah but i mean yeah let's go on to uh, christie quote awards i mean my my best description of roma comes from chris nashawati of entertainment weekly which isn't you know Not a reviewing body that I particularly trust, but, you know, we'll go for it. He said, uh, Roma may only span a year or so, but somehow in that year is the entirety of life itself. It's small fleeting moments of joy and longer, more poignant stretches of heartbreak. A hundred percent. A hundred and hundred percent. 
my best description comes from Adam Graham from Detroit News. And he says um, that this film is alive in a way that few movies are. Roma is a sumptuous piece of filmmaking. A gorgeous look at life on a grand scale told through the prism of one family. Um, the one thing I disagree with that best description is grand scale. I think it's actually a film that, pl- that plays on not so much a grand scale. It plays on sort of the ordinary the ordinary scale if that's an ordinary scale um if that is that a thing an ordinary scale uh, yeah, we'll i'm just gonna measure it. people we'll for how it, ordinary mate. they are <laughs> um but yeah i think i think that's very true it's it's the word is sumptuous it's 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 lovely you want to eat drink it all in so true so true it really is like it, there are moments of this film that you'll want to go on forever yes 100 percent um, um my good good co-umming there that was good co-umming <laughs> my most savage quote for roma comes from victoria alexander of the las vegas informer and she simply put i felt bad for the dog <laughs> um i mean i think the dog's treated quite well he's got an incredibly annoying name the, all, all the characters in this film will go up to him and they'll go boras 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 and I, I they must say it about 200 times in the film like, it does get quite quite tiresome. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, my most savage is from Rob Gonzalez from the famed and acclaimed eCritic.com. That's eCritic.com. Oh, oh it God. sounds like I'm sponsoring them now. No, ignore that. We're not sponsoring eCritic.com. Um, but this film, um, Rob Gonzalez says, every frame of this film could be isolated and hung on a wall. And maybe that's what should be done with it. Roma is a beautifully boring movie. <laughs> God. Which I quite like. I think it's quite it's, it's quite a clever witticism, but you know, it's not it's it's just wrong in my opinion. But then I can understand that this film can be isolating. I understand that tension with it. Of I've just come in from work. I've got I want to watch this film, but I'm sort of watching it with a group of people. Um, I'm too tired to watch it. That's not the you have to keep you have to like take a spot of your day to not pick up your phone and just watch this film. Yeah, on the biggest screen possible. Exactly. Um, uh, which is ironic because it's on Netflix. Um, so which, is a real, which is a real fucking shame. I mean, I hope, you know, if it does win the Oscar for Best Picture or if it wins something else, I'd, I'd like it to be re-released. Uh, I don't think it will necessarily get like an Odeon release, but just hopefully independent cinemas around the UK will pick it up. Mm. Um, do you have a favourite moment? Um, it was previously mentioned, but the fire scene was my favourite moment. I thought it was so powerful. Yeah, yeah, really excellent scene. I, I think for me it was the riot scene where um, oh. Cleo's out shopping with the grandmother of the family for a cot, a crib for her her soon to be firstborn child, and uh, riots kick off between student protesters and the government and the Falcones or Hawks or whatever you you said they were like the paramilitary group kind of storm the building that they're in and kill some people and it's revealed that one of them is the father of Cleo's child and he sort of scares them a bit and then runs off and it's just a very sad moment um but yeah, a really it's... but a really poignant one nonetheless um, um i have a i have a second favorite moment oh go on what um, is it well it's 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 less of a favorite moment and a, le- a favorite like a thing that happens in the film it happens twice the first scene of when the car goes into the driveway and it's a very extreme camera shot of the precision that that's needed to get this car into this very very small gar- garage um 
and then cut to later where you have a wide pan shot of the car like storming into the garage um, with the mother driving it in a very drunk state and just people looking on and then the, and just hearing the crickets in the background of the, just this furious drunk woman who's been cheated on and it's i think it's great i think that the the contrast between those scenes are fantastic yeah no i completely agree it's, it's a magical film i mean what would you what would you give it out of 10 is this going to knock anything off a pedestal for you Ooh, um i think it's not i think it's going to be lower than star is born but just i'm going to give it a nine a nine and a and nine. how come it's not edging I think it's a masterpiece. I think that a star, a star is born, is still the most emotional I felt at a film this year. This film is masterfully beautiful, but for me, it's for me with film. I do it because I love it. I do it because of emotion, yeah. and I do. I I have a cinematic view of the fil- the film, and a um and a view of the score, and a view of all the elements that make up the film. But I cannot deny the way i felt at star is born still and yeah. i feel very similar with this film but star is born just broke me mate it was like a rip curl um, really I, I i agree i think rome is a rome is a nine out of ten i think it's i think it's brilliant um i think it deserves a lot of credit i think it's um it's quite an important movie i think a lot of people should watch it and i think there's a lot of people who are very materialistic in the environment that we currently live in this kind of real consumerist culture um, who could be inspired by this film to kind of work a bit more on themselves and work a bit more on kind of just physical life itself and not be not be so obsessed with our smartphones and our kind of you know the little conveniences we afford ourselves in our lives. Um, Sometimes doing things the hard way is the best way, and I think you le- you learn that from this movie. Yeah, one hundred percent. It's 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 had a it's had a big impact on me. It really has. Um, um not another great co-op. Not to get. We're doing very good co-ops this week. Yeah, we mate, we're so in sync. Um, <laughs> we've reviewed both films the same as well. When we did not discuss this beforehand, this is no kind of dirty magic trick. Um, I think that's it, though. That is it for this week. What are we doing next week? Um, I think Green we're doing Book? we're doing Green Book, and then the week after that, we are giving uh, we are doing our BAFTA um, live watching. Thing. Well, no, no, mate, that's this weekend. Oh, is that so, this weekend? So I we're think doing that? I think we're going to review Green Book um, at some point, but we're also going to watch the BAFTAs live on Sunday night and get an episode out. Yep, you guessed it. On Monday. Yeah, That's exactly. never happened. So, yes, we are going to cover the BAFTAs. We are very excited. We gave our predictions a few weeks back, so we're going to bring them back up and talk about what we got right, what we got wrong, and hopefully we did a little bit better than our Golden Globe predictions. Um, oh, it's all a warm-up. It's all training for the big one, the Oscars, coming up in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah. Um, I'm excited, mate. I'm really looking forward to it, and I'm really looking forward to seeing Green Book because... Other than Vice, which, let's be honest, we know isn't going to win Best Picture, um, it's probably the first time I've seen every, you know, viable contender for the Best Picture. Yeah, very, very true. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited to see Green Book, but I'm, I, interestingly, I've seen Green Book on Saturday. and Oh, you've um, already seen it? No, no, no. I'm seeing Green Book on Saturday. Oh. Um, and... 
my mother is seeing it on Friday. And my mum my doesn't watch films a lot. And she, I'm very excited to hear her opinion on what she thinks of Green Book. Because I think it would really inflect what... what Because I, I chose it out. The list of possible films are like, I said, you will like Green Book. And so she's booked to see Green Book. So I'm interested to see her opinion on this. And I, I maybe Sarah can call in. Who knows? The mm. BAFTAs, Sarah Paxton, you know... You have everything with this podcast. The bumper, the big old bumper Paxton extravaganza. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, that is it for the 52-week film project. Um, as always, I, I never normally do this. I no, like no, it. I mean, please, mate, by all means. No, I, 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 I've never done this before. This is great. Oh, power. So please always follow us on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Twitter is never... We need to pick up that Twitter. Ace. Will, come on, mate. It helps if you finish off the podcast by not slagging off our own social media campaigns. <laughs> <laughs> no, but follow it anyway. Um, please email us at 52weekfilmproject at gmail.com. Um, we have... Or do an audio voice recording on Anchor. That's a great point you made earlier. Um, I love those. They do, um, they, do, they do bring a little smile to our faces. Also, if you want to... Do this poll about Hobson Shaw. Um, I I might post a link to it on the description. Yeah, um, fair enough, fair enough. Well, let's let's bring it up when that movie comes out. We will push the boat out to five of our listeners. What does Jake have to do if Hobson Shaw is not described by Will as balls to the wall fun? I mean, who I, knows what they'll come up with? I'm excited for creativity. I think, the, from I think the, the, the better question here is, what are you going to have to do when you are forced to say it's balls to the walls fun? <laughs> At gunpoint by Jake. Anyway, okay. that's all we've got for this week. Um, <laughs> thank you very much, Will. Thank you very much, Jake. And we will see you all.